Hi, welcome to the What's Next podcast. This is Tiffany Bova. I have the absolute pleasure of welcoming Dr. Linda Hill to the podcast today. She is the Wallace Brett Dunn Professor of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School and the chair of the Leadership Initiative. Hill is regarded as one of the top experts on leadership. She's the co-author of Collective Genius, The Art and Practice of Leading Innovation, the co-author of Being the Boss, and the Three, the three Imperatives of Becoming a Great Leader. It was noted by the Wall Street Journal as one of the five business books to read for your career. She's also the co-founder of Paradox Strategies and the co-creator of the Innovation Quotient. She was named by Thinkers 50 as one of the top 10 management thinkers in the world in 2013 and received the Thinkers 50 Innovation Award in 2015. Her TED Talk, How to Manage for Collective Creativity, has gotten more than 2 million views. So if you haven't seen it, that's the first thing you need to do tomorrow morning. Anyway, welcome Dr. Hill to my podcast. Pleasure to be here. It's just so great to have you. You know, we have crossed paths a couple of times, and I know that I've been chasing you to get you on uh, to the What's Next show. And so I'm so thrilled to have you here today. So we're going to start this off with uh, something I call bullish and bearish. Hopefully it's not too painful. We just sort of try to get the juices flowing, some fun questions, and you can lean into bullish that you sort of don't agree or you can uh, land on the bearish side, uh, or rather the bullish side if you agree, and the bearish side if you don't agree. And hopefully they'll be fun and, and not, too, not too tough on you this morning. Okay, I'm ready. All righty. All right, the first one. Virtual reality will become the new classroom. Disagree. All right. All right. Figured you'd go that way, but I really want to talk about that. So we'll hold that for a second. The next one, artificial intelligence will be able to write a best-selling book. Agree. Oh, after all your writing, I was surprised. Now that one surprised me. All right. The next one, millennials will make better leaders than boomers. Agree. Oh, nice. Not too painful, right? Not too painful, not, not at all. Not too painful. Well, you know, you, uh, I, I first got to know you through through your TED talk, and and I think that your uh, whole concept on collective creativity is a great way to start because I think it sort of brings forward a lot of your thinking over the last couple of years for sure. But if you wouldn't mind, maybe taking people through. Uh, sort of how you got to the concept of, of collective creativity and then kind of the journey that brought you to writing the book. And then I'd love to hear sort of what, what has transpired since you've written the book. So collective genius really is the result of over a decade of research. I was asked by our dean to figure out whether or not we were helping people learn what they needed to learn when they came here to the Harvard Business School about leadership, in particular about leading innovation. And I told him I presumed we were doing that because we have some of the world experts on innovation. I wasn't thinking of me. I was thinking of people like Clay Christensen and Michael Tushman. And I have other colleagues who do work on innovation. I presumed we were doing that. But then what I did is I went to the library because I am an academic and I began to look more closely. And I realized that we in the academy are siloed so that the people who study innovation are actually quite separate from the people who study leadership. And there's not that much research that has looked at the connection between leadership and innovation. So I ended up going back to the dean and saying, you know what, I'm not so sure about this because for sure they can learn about the innovation process and about strategies related to innovation, 
but I don't know if we're preparing them to be able to build companies and lead companies that can routinely innovate and use that knowledge and therefore make sure their companies can grow. So I said to him, I think I need to go out and have some conversations. So I set out to have some conversations. And when I did have these conversations, I heard from some people who were known to be exceptionally good at leading innovation that, as one of them put it, I don't read books on on leadership anymore because they don't seem to relate to what I do. So this made me very nervous. So luckily for me, I was able to put together a team of people, including a man who was at the time basically the chief technology officer of Pixar, to go out and study people who had built teams, organizations, or ecosystems that could innovate time and again. And when we did that research, we found out that for them, leadership or leading innovation was actually different than leading change. So we all know that leading change is about having a vision, communicating that vision, and being able to inspire people to want to fulfill that vision. Well, leading innovation is not about that. It's not so much about whether you are creating a vision and getting people to follow you. It's really about creating the environment necessary for people to be willing and able to co-create the future with you. So there are actually two very different tasks. And one of the things we learned from that is that leadership, as we know, has always been hard, but it's even harder because if we want to grow our businesses, we have to be good at leading change and also good at leading innovation, as well as, of course, executing. So that's, that's what we learned from that research. And it was a surprise to me. So for sure, in fact, all the people that we studied were visionaries. And one of their challenges when they're leading innovation is to make sure they make space for other people because they could take up all the space themselves, if you will, with their vision. But again, that's not what leading innovation is about. When you're trying to do breakthrough innovation, in fact, you may not even have a vision. You don't have an answer. You know, It's breakthrough. You do have a purpose, though, a sense of purpose or why you're doing the work. And that is what pulls people together and lets people work together on something. But it's not about knowing the direction. You just know the reason, the why of the work. What's the problem you're trying to solve? What's the opportunity you're trying to take advantage of? And it's not just semantics. It's really a very different task and way of having to carry yourself, what you attend to, how you want to behave. And so, again, there's a certain set of things that we need to help people learn if they're going to lead change and a certain set of things we have to help them know if they're going to be leading innovation. So that's really fascinating. Let me ask you, you know, you use the word sort of lead innovation a lot and the word sort of leadership. And and I know that this is a fine line and many people in the academia specifically and in that sphere of, of people you look to as, as kind of leading thinkers, there's this debate going on of leading and managing, right? Is there a difference between, le- difference between leadership and management? And if you're going to quote unquote lead innovation, what does that sort of person look like who's potentially capable of, as you just said, like, what's the what's the why of it? What's the how of it? it it's really about shaping a vision. Um, you may not know where you're going, but you have to have a very specific skill set as someone who is going to lead innovation. So let me, so, so let me just build on what I was saying before, and I do want to go ahead and talk later about what I'm doing now. I'm a protege of two people, John Cotter and Warren Bennis, who taught us about the distinction between leadership and management. Leadership is about dealing with change and management is about dealing with complexity. And what they found is that in many organizations, what we see is that those organizations are overled and undermanaged. Hence, we see many organizations that aren't able to adapt. And so that is the model of leadership that I grew up with and that we actually were helping people learn about, if you will, here at the Harvard Business School. When I began to do the research on 
leading innovation, or by what I mean by that is building an organization that can routinely innovate, what I saw was that definition of leading and lead, leadership that I described about dealing with change, that is about dealing with change. That's not about de- dealing with innovation. They're actually two separate tasks. And that surprised me. So what you are trying to do when you are trying to build an organization that can routinely innovate is you are trying to behave in a way that will get people to be willing and able to do the very, very hard work of innovation. And I will describe what that work is in a minute. That's what the task is. And that is not a task of coming up with a a vision, communicating it and inspiring people to fulfill that vision. That is not what it's about. Instead, it's about can you build an environment in which people will be, as I said, willing to do the hard work of innovation. And because innovation is emotionally and intellectually very taxing, you have to create an environment where there is enough support in that environment for people to want to do that work and enough meaning that is being created by the work itself so that people want to co-create with you. And in terms of people being able to innovate, they need to be able to do a few tasks that we've always known are true about innovation. There are three things about innovation that we've known for a long time. One is most innovations are not the result of some individual having an aha moment. Instead, innovations are usually the result of a collaboration of people with diverse perspectives and expertise. It's not a single act, it's a collaborative act, hence collective genius. The second thing we know is you cannot plan your way to an innovation, you have to act your way to an innovation. So it's a process of discovery-driven learning with many missteps, you can have mistakes, et cetera. It is a process of iteration and it can be quite messy. And then the third thing we've always known about innovation is that most innovations are not a single idea. They're usually a combination of ideas, some that are sort of new ideas, maybe some that are old, being brought together to solve a a new problem or a different problem, maybe two old ideas applied to a completely different situation. Often what you see about innovations when you break them down, going back to Roger Martin's language, and I know you've had him on a podcast, they're about bringing together opposing ideas. So that innovation is actually about. And so consequently, when you are trying to quote lead innovation, It's about you trying to make sure you've created a culture. We call it a community culture where where people are willing to engage in this very hard work and these organizational capabilities that will allow you to collaborate, do discovery-driven learning, and do decision-making in a way that you can combine ideas. So that's what the task is when you're trying to, quote, lead innovation in the way that I'm describing it. And again, for me, it's not about just doing it once. It's about doing it time and time again. Well, so you, you've said a couple of times here, sort of creating the environment. And, and when I talk to people about innovation, here's the pushback I get, and I'm sure you hear it all the time uh, and heard it in your research is, you know, are we spending enough time on it? Am I giving people enough time to uh, collaborate and sort of let this collective genius happen, right? And then, and then internally, do we have a culture and a risk appetite for innovation, which we all know that people go, wow, I can't believe they got it right, you know, the first time and you don't realize behind the scenes, like, you know, they failed 300 times, right? (laughs) That they think it's overnight success, you know, kind of thing. Uh, So, so how can organizations give that sort of creating the environment? How do they give it innovation time to breathe? So one thing about it, and it's very much what you're saying, giving it, you have to have some slack time, if you will. And you have to be able to improvise somewhat if, in fact, you are going to be able to innovate and people have to have a forum to meet in to actually do these innovations. And forum, it may be virtual, 
right? It may not be that they're physically together, although there is no substitute for face-to-face interactions when you're talking about doing emotionally and intellectually difficult work. So I think what you have to do is, in your organization is you need to make the time. And frankly, people will be more willing to, if you will, find the time if the work is deeply meaningful, going back to the purpose, as I said. I'm going to work really hard if I care about what we're trying to get done together. I'm not going to work so hard. For Money won't make me do that. As one of the leaders we said put it, you need to remember, Linda, that innovation is a voluntary act. You cannot use your formal authority to get people to innovate. You cannot tell people to innovate. They need to want to do it. And the other thing we've always known about most innovation is it's bottom up. It is not top down. So that willingness, you just if, if the purpose is big enough and if you create some slack so that they can do that, they will, they will begin to do the work that they need to do. So you do need to think about that. And it's not accidental that organizations are also talking about how do we create space where it's easier for people to work together. Because many of us are in environments where, in fact, just the physical space makes it hard for us to collaborate, particularly with people who are different from us, right? Because proximity does actually matter in all of this. And even though I said virtual virtual reality will not be our, the classroom of the future, it will play a very important role in that process because it will bring together you know, those of us who aren't physically together so much anymore to allow some of this kind of work to be done in a more sort of a, a space that feels more real, even though we're not physically together. So you just you just got to do it. We've created, um, as you mentioned, a diagnostic to help you look at whether you have the culture and capabilities necessary for innovation. And one of the things we do ask about is we ask people to reflect on how much time they have to simply learn, to be curious, because without that learning and curiosity, again, you don't tend to see environments in which people are open to learning, nonetheless, the kinds of missteps that you will take and the kinds of anxiety you will experience as you begin to share your half-baked ideas with people or experiment to to try to figure out what might be a way that you can solve a particular problem. The other thing I need to step back on, Tiffany, Tiffany, you didn't ask me this question, but I I do want to just define what I mean by innovation. For us, an innovation is anything that is both new and useful. And it's a very democratic, if you will, definition of innovation, because what we see in organizations that are able to routinely innovate is that everyone in the organization is seen as having, as they say at Pixar, a slice of genius. doesn't matter who you are, whether you move boxes, you cook, you're, you know, you're the scientist, technologist, whatever. Everyone in the organization is encouraged to always be thinking about what are better ways for us to do our work. Not just as innovation is not just new products or services or business models. It can also be ways of organizing, cutting costs. Everybody has a role that they can play in that process. So consequently, in these organizations, what you see is there's not a brick wall between the people who, quote, innovate and the people who execute. All of us are encouraged to always think about how can we be doing things in a better way for our customer, our clients, or for the organization. So with that kind of definition, and when you encourage people to think that way, and they're all supposed to be learning, and they're all supposed to be accountable for what's happening in the organization more broadly, you tend to end up, and there are other very specific pieces to these cultures that we saw, but you tend to end up with environments where people do experience a more psychological safety, more sense of community, more willingness to take reasonable risks. And so for sure, it's, it's an environment, you can't create a, create a culture for just a few people, right? It's just not, it doesn't work that way. You have to create a culture that is an organizational culture where people, everybody feels 
a part of the organization so that you get that that diversity of thought and the willingness to actually abrade because you rarely get innovation without that diversity and also conflict, healthy conflict. Well, so a couple of things then, you know, I I wonder if based on what you just said, you know, giving room to breathe, you know, it can't just be some people have that culture, everybody has to have that culture. And if you're any size organization, do you think that the reason that these kind of pop-up innovation labs are happening outside of the main mothership <laughs> is a way to contain this new uh, sort of innovative thinking. And, you know, they're, they're very, um, they're not risk adverse. The metrics are aligned. You know, everyone is sort of understands the vision and they're sort of churning out, uh, you know, these new ideas and thinking together in a collaborative way while potentially, you know, the, the home office if you will, self-contained core business, you know, is continuing to kind of keep the lights on and producing, producing revenue. Do you think that that that's why those pop-ups are happening? Because it's the easiest way to ease yourself into creating a culture of innovation. Well, you know, a couple of things. The answer is yes, but I think it's also it's that approach has its limitations. Yeah. So let me just that's that's actually what I'm doing research on right now. So what we looked at, we looked at all kinds of organizations in many different countries in the world. And as you know, but the listeners don't, I'm an ethnographer. I use the methods of anthropology to do my work. So the way I do my work is I have to watch people as they're doing their work up close and personal. And then I step back and look at what are the general themes I see across settings, right? That different leaders are doing or what I see happening in different organizations. So what I've been studying lately is really this question of how do you get the work that's been done that is being done in these innovation labs or these accelerators how do you get that work integrated back into the big business or the core business so that it can be scaled and actually implemented that is the question right so you can set up the separate pieces and perhaps you should there's lots of evidence about why you should do that but there's not a lot of research about how you then get that work back connected into the right. to the mothership so that's that is what we're studying right now and we're studying that in part because we, we sort of fell into it because we're looking at the creation of these ecosystems to tackle some really, really big innovation challenges, right? And, and, and when you do that, it's not just what we're looking at as many organizations, not only, not only do they have these organic accelerators inside, but many of these organizations also are building private-private partnerships or public-private partnerships because they just don't have all the expertise in the organization to get it done. And so then the question is, how do you take this outside future and bring it into the present? And we're, we're, uh, we're really studying that, that question in great depth in a, in a number of different contexts. So we're looking at fintechs, fashion tech accelerators. We're looking at efforts to, to change the process by which trials are done by pharmaceutical companies. And those pharmaceutical companies are working with biotechs. Again, they have their own internal uh, accelerators as well, and they're also working with government. So yes, that uh, you may have to separate it out, but you also need to figure out when to bring them together. And if you separate it so much so that the people on the, if you will, in the innovation accelerator are defined as the people who are as the only people who are the cool people who can innovate, guess what? When you go to try to execute <laughs> with the core, they reject you because you've rejected right. them. So how do you build an environment? a broader culture that subsumes both and that actually, again, helps both sides, both pieces develop the capabilities necessary to do innovative work. So 
not to jump too far ahead, but the other thing that we're working on is we're trying to design new kinds of leadership development programs that help people practice this stuff, both the people who are in the accelerators as well as the people who are in the core. But the other thing is we ended up having to come up with another way of conceiving of leadership that allowed for space in it, the way it was the framing allowed for people to think about, okay, when I'm leading innovation, this is what I need to think about. When I'm leading change, this is what I need to think about. So the Being the Boss book that you mentioned is the three imperatives of leadership are another way of putting together leadership that hopefully will allow people to have an approach to leadership that will allow them to deal with both change and innovation. And I want to say right up front that John Cotter and Warren Bennis are exactly right. Dealing with change, the leadership that they define the way they do, exactly what it's about. Well, so I'm gonna I'm gonna guess then that, you know, based on that kind of assuming the two, and, and I mean there's hundreds of clients I could list, and, and I'm sure you know just as many, where they'll say, Do we want to pop up some kind of, you know, innovation lab or even testing and piloting things? But then reintroducing it, you're right. There's just not a whole lot behind that. And I mean, I guess that takes a very specific, so for listeners, right, if you are running a small business or a medium or enterprise and you are the head of sales, marketing, service, everything, right, you're running your own company uh, or you work in a large organization, uh, you probably have to have very specific communication skills. I don't care what your title is to make sure going back to uh, creating that environment, uh, where you welcome back in people who you may have separated, right? I mean, you, you should be able to very clearly communicate and I, and I'm going to make a huge assumption here, but I'm guessing that I'm wondering if when, what you're finding is when it doesn't go so well, that it isn't the, the doers, you know, it isn't really falling on, you know, you said innovations from the bottom up, right? It isn't the bottom up that's failing. It's almost the top down that's failing. Would you agree? Yes, I agree completely. And so one of the things that, so the, the way we, there's nothing, uh, so nothing magical about this approach, but the way we are asking people to think about leadership is in the following way. First, there are three imperatives. The first imperative is managing yourself. You are always trying to use yourself as an instrument when you are leading and you're trying to match your intent with your impact. The second imperative is managing your network. This is about managing relationships with people over whom you have no formal authority, but you're deeply dependent on to get your job done. These people may be inside the organization. They may be outside the organization. And the third is managing your team. And that's about managing relationships with people over whom you actually do have formal authority. Now, when most people think about leadership, they only think about that third circle, if you will, that third imperative, the managing the people who report to you. They don't think enough about the people who are in that network piece. And frankly, many people actually feel that part of it shouldn't be their job, right? That's dirty. That's not what I'm supposed to be doing. My job is taking care of my team. Well, no, particularly if you're going to innovate, if you can't manage that network of relationships, you can't, you're not going to get anything. You're not going to innovate about anything. You very much need to be able to engage your peers, your bosses, and maybe as we talked earlier, people outside the organization who you need to have as partners to get this done. So we've, we have done a disservice, I think, as academics in not helping people understand that that network piece, that is leadership. And that is a hugely important part of leadership when you're talking about innovation. And of course, it always goes back to you, yourself. Are you present? Are you able to really understand what your task needs to be when you're working on a particular, whether it's a change or an execution or an innovation that you're trying to get done? So we ended up having to think about leadership differently. And I think that the main piece of that is that network piece 
is just so critical when it comes to innovation. And so when I say managing here, I'm using it different than leadership versus management. I'm talking about how do you build the relationships necessary to influence those people you're dependent on to try to innovate. So one of the things we see is many, many people will say, I have so many wonderful ideas of things we should be doing, et cetera. But guess what? My team is just not ready. They, they're not going to support me. So they haven't built the kind of team they need to be able to leverage themselves and innovate. Or they'll say, my team is ready, but oh, my peers, you know, my bosses, no one gets it. The whole organization is set up in a way that the metrics are wrong, et cetera. I just, it's just too much for my team to take it on, even though we're so passionate about this. Well, part of the problem is I always say back to them, guess what, that's your problem. <laughs> this is what you think about. You, you, no innovation happens without working across organi the organization or across with people outside. That is your job. That is leadership. That is a hugely important part of leadership. So let's talk about how you do that. So a lot of what I'm doing now in our courses here is helping people really think about how to manage that network of relationships so that they will be ready to take on these innovation challenges. Because too often they're defined, you know, I'm running my accelerator. It's not my job to take care of the rest of the organization. That's somebody else's job. That's why we're over here. No, no, no. Right. If you want that work to happen, you've got to create the context by managing that network of relationships, by managing that network of relationships will, that will allow your team to have the resources necessary, the allies necessary, the partnerships necessary for that work to ever truly be implemented. So based on that, well, so based so, on that, you know, if, if, you know, somebody who's listening is trying to, you know, show up and say, I have some ideas right? Or I want to try to do this. I know my team might not be ready or the culture might not be ready. What would be the sort of three imperatives that someone would, would need either from a, you know, a personality or a, you know, kind of how would you advise them to approach potentially their manager, right? So I'm managing bottom up. I have this great idea. I want to try it, but I'm, you know, I know the company's risk adverse and I don't have the right metrics and no one's, what would you recommend to them if, if they had this idea um, that may, you know, be really truly game-changing for the, for the company? So Tiffany, I'm going to first say, you know, this is probably why I'm an academic, but we do have a whole framework for thinking about what are the six tensions that must be managed if you're trying to innovate. And I'm not going to go through all six of those, but one of them is about how you manage bottom up yep. versus top down. But I'm going to go, let me answer the first thing. The first thing is what is your own mindset about what it means to be a leader when you're trying to innovate? For one thing, you're going to have to let go of the visionary mindset. That, that actually is not about what innovation is. You are creating a context in which other people are going to co-create with you and you need to make space for other people. So the first thing is I'd say in terms of that first imperative of managing yourself, understand that this is not about you. It's about you making sure that you create an environment in which all the parties that need to play can play yep. appropriately. The second one is that it is not just about the people who do report to you. So you need to step back and I'd say draw a picture of who are you truly dependent on for this to happen? Who do you need to influence for this to happen? So one of the people's that, excuse me, one of the people that we've studied to look at this question of the connection is a man named Tom Khalil. And he was actually, when we studied him, he was at the White House. He was the head of technology and innovation at the White House. And one of the things he did is when he was thinking about, imagine the network of people he needed to influence to get any innovation happening in government, you know? really, even though he's in the White House, has some formal authority, if you will, didn't control the budget or anything. So what he did was he said, okay, the task is going to be not just my team, 
but we're going to have to work, build coalitions inside and outside government. So that impacted who he hired. So he said, you know what? I'm only going to hire people who are, are I'm, I'm mostly going to hire, not only, I'm mostly going to hire people who are T-shaped, very deep about something, some expertise, but broad enough across the top that that expertise can be utilized to work with diverse others. So he was very careful about who he hired. Then the second thing he did is he did a lot of coaching of them to help them understand how you build coalitions, because that's going to be a large part of the task. It's not just going to be about us. We get it. We want to do it. We need to know how to work with other people. So what ended up happening with his team is they actually sat down one day without, he didn't tell them to do this. They ended up creating a list, a list of what they referred to as Khalilisms. His name was Tom Khalil. Things they had learned from him about how to build a coalition. There were a couple of ideas that I would like to share as a third, if I could, is instead of going to the most powerful person, we often do that when we're networking, if you will, go to the most interested person. Don't worry about power at this point. Who else, who has, who's sharing a, a similar pain point with you or aspiration that could be a positive or a negative? Start with that person, even if they're not so powerful and work your way to the people who are more powerful. So I think the first piece becomes doing that diagnostic and understanding because people can be quite overwhelmed when they draw the picture of who am I really going to have to move for this to happen? And then what you need to do is I'd say to coach the people who work for you on your team with how they work effectively with these other parties to build those coalitions. And I don't think we don't see enough of that happening. I know now in many organizations, even if you want to execute better, you'd want to do that. But I think he was very sensitive to it in part because he is a politician, right, or works in a political process. So it feels natural to him. Whereas I think for many people, I mean, I work with many, um, I work with a lot of software engineers, as you might imagine, because of a lot of the work we do, it's about digitization is happening in these accelerators, et cetera, and helping them think through in a constructive way that they understand why they have to do it, why this networking piece is so important and how it's tied to their idea happening. Not, it's not about whether who you're golfing or eating with or what are all of that. It's more about understanding deeply, okay, if this is going to happen, who do you need to want to go along with you on this? Who and how are you going to build those necessary relationships that they're going to take a risk with you? Why should they bother to do this with you when, in fact, they already have their own jobs to do, right, that are really very stressful and difficult, et cetera? So what I try to do is help people we actually even have tools to help them understand who they're dependent on. What, what, what's the nature of the relationships that they have with these people? How do they cultivate healthier relationships so that they'll be willing to tackle what needs to be tackled? Because you and I know it's not that these organizations don't have ideas. It's really an implementation Absolutely. challenge. So Absolutely. So the, the, the last piece of it that I will say to you is that I've recently been at a lot of companies and I wish I knew more about all these, these methods and these platforms, but you know, they put in all kinds of methods, help people learn how to do lean startup or design thinking or any number of tools and processes or built platforms out to help encourage this kind of innovation that they all know they need. But without the supportive culture and the supportive leadership where you don't punish people for reasonable mistakes, for instance, where you can't do some improvising, you know, you have enough structure so people can collaborate but on the other hand, you have enough uh, space for some improvisation so you can try new things and experiment. Um, if you don't have that happening in the environment, these tools you've put in place, people aren't using them. 
So I think it truly is a case of thinking both about the environment and the tools. So one, one executive said to me, we should have started with culture and leadership and capabilities. And, you know, we have three capabilities. We talk about creative abrasion, creative agility, and creative resolution. But I said, you know what? I don't know. Maybe in your organization, it was best to start with the tool because that's, people can feel that that's more tangible. And now they're hungrier because they have the tools and they're kind of frustrated. You've created frustration. And now maybe they'll be more open to thinking about leading in different ways that those tools can be utilized so the company can grow. So I, you know, I don't know where you start, but we need, there's lots we need to be able to do this work right. Well, this has been really fantastic, Dr. Hill. You know, I I guess I I wish we could keep going, right? But, but there's so many things you recommended people to do in, uh, you know, whether it's a workbook or, you know, an assessment, is there, is there some place you can send people uh, online to, to look at some of this work that they could then, uh, you know, sort of collectively get more uh, involved in uh, besides obviously your tech talk, tech talk and reading your books, but anything that they can get their hands on from a, from a workbook perspective. Um, you know what? It's funny. So we do have a paradox strategies. We do have a website and we do direct people to, to some tools that they can look at. I must say, unfortunately, the diagnostic is proprietary at this point, but I'm hoping to make that more available. And, and in the, uh, the last, I mean, I'm trying to think, we have an article on boards and innovation. If they do look at the Harvard Business School website where my materials are, I think that's probably on the paradox strategies website as well. The, the Boards and Innovation article has some questions for people to think through, specifically about boards, but also could be used to think about your team. And I think the, uh, again, I'm not trying to sell things, the Harvard Business Review article that summarized collective gen- summarizes Collective Genius also has some questions in it. But if they go to Paradox Strategies, uh, our website, I think they'll, they'll get some information about how to get to those resources. The actual diagnostic is not there, though. But, but still, you know, I, I've read, uh, I, well, first of all, I've read the books, I've watched the TED Talk, I've read the HBR articles, not all of them, because uh, Dr. Hill is a prolific writer, so I could <laughs> never consume them all. Um, but the the one that I really enjoyed was the board's new innovation imperative. I think it was in the November issue. And, and I think yeah. it's a really great way, whether you're a small business uh, medium, or you're just an individual contributor, it really sort of frames out a lot of these concepts and ideas. So I highly recommend that to everybody. Uh, but with that, you know, I'd love to wrap this up, Dr. Hill. Thank you so much for your time. And, and I'd like to ask you the very last question would be, so what's next for people when it comes to leadership and innovation? If you could give them one sort of nugget to walk away with at the end of, of this half hour when they're driving or on the, on the treadmill, whatever they're doing as they're listening to this podcast, what would you give them? I do think it's, it is time that we all step back and look at our assumptions about what leadership is all about and how, how we think about things and what we need ourselves to feel good about ourselves and to make sure we're contributing as leaders might get in the way of us actually building the kind of environment in which people can really flourish. And the reason I say that is because one of the things I know probably about your listeners, are these are people who have a very, very high need for achievement. They want to achieve. And to some extent, when I talked about how you have to make space for other people, if you're really, really good yourself, if you're a star, and you have a very high need for achievement, there are lots of reasons why it's actually harder for you to learn how to lead like this than easier. And so the self-work that has to be done is just tremendous to be able to build the kinds of organizations we need today. Going back to why I think millennials will be better off 
than the people who are, are my age and older, because one of the things we know about millennials is their notions of first about leadership and also about uh, collaboration are different than what, if you will, some of us learned who are a little older in school. That said, what I understand about the millennials is they're the most collaborative generation ever, but they're also the most competitive. And that's an interesting combination that I think they'll be able to work on and use to try to build these organizations that can execute and change and innovate. I don't, that may be a longer answer than you wanted. Well, oh no, that was perfect. That was perfect. So I appreciate uh, you being here. I appreciate your friendship and, and guidance over the years. And, and I just thank you for spending this time with us today on the What's Next podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Hill. Really a privilege. Thank you. Wow. What an amazing conversation with Dr. Hill. I, I mean, I feel like I could sit and listen to her for another half hour. I don't know how you guys feel, but I feel like that was a crash course in how to be a leader, leading change if you're trying to drive innovation. So a few highlights for me were leading change is different than leading innovation. And I loved her comment about you have to create the environment to have people co-create with you. Let yourself breathe and give yourself and your company and your people time to try things and understand what it means to innovate. And really her definition of innovation was simple. It was new and useful. So much less threatening than what everybody else can might toss around for a two or three minute response. I loved how quick it was. And for me, I, I, I think what I took away is something I want to sort of carry forward is that innovation is a voluntary act, that getting people to want to come along on this journey with you is a bottoms up exercise, not a top down exercise. So if you are an individual contributor and you have a great idea and you want to help the company innovate, start a movement from the bottom, get with your manager, show how you can make this happen, create this collective combination of people and teams and thinking styles all to create this wonderful environment where innovation can thrive. So with that, I thank you for spending time with me on the What's Next podcast today. Don't forget to subscribe if you would so be so kind to leave a review. Make sure you share with your friends and I'll look forward to hearing and seeing from you next time. Have a great day. Bye-bye.